deciding to embark on graduate studies can be a big step to take. For a lot of you out there, it represents your first leap into independent life and can carry a lot of unknowns, especially if you're a first-generation graduate student. One of the big challenges this decision carries, besides having to deal with stereotypes to do with staying in school versus getting a job, is that for the first time you will be fending for yourself as an active adult and negotiating your way through applications and offers for what will be, for all intents and purposes, a five-year professional engagement leading to your degree. This week, Stephanie, the host of the Career Conversations channel on YouTube, will be sharing her experience in her ongoing doctoral research and some insights she has drawn from her work on career conversations. I think everyone has something to bring to the table and we just have to know where our talents lie and kind of play to those strengths. Instead of having the feeling I have to take everything that is being offered to me and I don't really have a choice. Actually, the one career counselor that I've interviewed said that Everyone is in the top 10% in some skill. So I feel as soon as we realize what our skills are and what we have to bring to our ta uh, to the table, we can negotiate a lot more and we can be um, a lot more picky about what we are choosing in the end. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know that I've prepared for you a resource sheet to help you take a snapshot of your current situation and start defining your profile for the job market in your areas of interest. You can download it by visiting papaphd.com and following the instructions in the website footer. Welcome to the show. So today I'm here in Montreal talking to Switzerland, talking with Stephanie who is the host of Career Conversations, a YouTube channel dedicated to sharing some, uh, some experience from her PhD uh, experience with the other students out there that may be struggling and dealing with what's going to happen after my PhD, how am I going to finish this, how can I communicate my, my data, my research, etc. Stephanie uh, is a PhD student currently in skin cancer research. The YouTube channel is a side project she, she develops because she, she wants to share this knowledge with, with her colleagues, with her, you know, with the colleagues around the world. And the way she does this is by showing people the features in their careers that they, they have control of. Because it's true while you're in a PhD, you can feel that there's a lot that, that is out of your control. And uh, she has, she's that little... Uh, voice in the darkness that says, look, you have control on this, this and this, just take that control and you'll see things will go better. So welcome to Papa PhD, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a total pleasure. And I'm super happy to have you here, uh, to have you share your story and some of your, of your insights. Now, uh, what I would ask you is to, to talk a little bit about yourself, thinking of the listeners out there, let them know, you know where you come from, how you came to have an interest in science, uh, in, in biology and in cancer research. Yes, so I am from Germany. Um, how I developed an interest in science is difficult to say because I think interest is something that you just have or don't have. 
So uh, in that sense, I was always good at biology in school. I did um, some career counseling when I was 15 or 16. Actually, I interviewed my counselor later for my uh, podcast, and she, she recommended to, for me to study molecular medicine, um, which is a combination of biology and medicine. And this is what I ended up doing. And um, yeah, I realized that I kind of always understood cancer better than lots of other fields, like for instance, immunology, I'm terrible at. So um, yes. This is how I started to become interested in cancer. I used to work in uh, London, uh, researching metastasis and so on. So this, like everything that I did so far was on cancer. Then for a very short time, I worked at a big pharma company. I'm also not sure if I'm allowed to say which one because they're very particular about their (laughs) public uh, appearance. So, but it was a big pharma company. And then I realized I really want to do a PhD because it felt at this time, this is what you need to climb up the career ladder. Or at least I was not happy with the options that I perceived back then that I had without a PhD. And um, yes, this is how I started to apply and um, how I started my PhD. I have a wonderful supervisor. So right now I'm very happy that she's also allowing me to do something on the side that is not purely research. That's that's really, really cool uh, because uh, this has been mentioned on some of the other episodes. In some institutes, in some uh, departments, it may be frowned upon to, especially in, in the life sciences domain, which is the, the one that I know better, it's frowned upon that the students take time for things that are other than their research. So it's, it's super cool that you have this opportunity. And I think it's super generous of you that, that uh, you take this opportunity to share something with the others uh, out there that may be struggling. So awesome. Um, now, you know, you, you really summarized your, you know, your path very well. And because you come from, you know, a country and the reality that's, that's a little bit far from what I know, one first question that, ca- that came up to me was, uh, and tell me if I understood right, in high school, you had a career advisor with whom you discussed your, your uh, you know, what jobs might be good for you. Yes. This was in high school, right? Yes, exactly. Was that part of, of uh, what was offered uh, normally by the high school? You know, can, this, can you talk about that a little bit more about the process? No, not at all. It is something that my parents paid for. And it was about which courses I'm going to choose um, for the last two years of high school because they are quite important for when you then want to go to university. Um, so it was mainly uh, to do with that. And um, yeah, but it was unfortunately not offered. The offers that, I ha- that we have in Germany are not really good unfortunately a good initiative there because definitely it's an age at which if, if i you know if you think back at that time uh, you know we're not equipped uh, we're not the best equipped to take these decisions without some help so for sure that must have helped you and clearly if you're today studying what you're studying you know th- there was something there uh, then um the part that you kind of uh, went through a little bit quickly was uh, actually university. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about how, how that went? Did you right away uh, find, find what you wanted? Did you uh, also, the degree that you studied, was it the type where you get into kind of a, a common, uh, common section and then choose a path uh, later on in your degree? Or can you talk a little bit about how, how it went and how it goes, uh, how things work in Germany? Yeah, so first of all, I hated university, to be honest, um, <laughs> because, well, first of all, I was a very, very uh, lazy student back in high school, so I never really learned how to study, and I just made it up as I 
went on and then I realized in university you cannot really do this anymore because the amount of knowledge that you need to have in the end is much higher than what you can get into your head within the night before your exam. So this was something that I struggled with quite a bit in the beginning. Um, and then also I'm a very independent person. So I hated how uh, few choices we had at university. So we have this bachelor's and master's thing. And you just basically it is like school, but um, in a different city. Or at least it felt like that for me and that I was living alone. So uh, I was looking forward to more independence, but basically we didn't really have that. Um, my bachelor's was quite useful, I would say, in terms of what I have learned. Um, like it was the typical biochemistry and so on. So still some parts of it I'm using today. Um, I found my master's was a complete waste of time. It was also... Um, molecular by uh, medicine but um, the thing is we had things like pathology where we had to study all kinds of different diseases um, but only scratched the surface and the thing is as a researcher you're usually focusing on one disease maybe then in your postdoc you're focusing on another disease but you definitely don't need this broad overview of tons of diseases and this was my, mostly my master's and then we had a few practical courses where I felt we already knew every, or I at least already knew all the methods that we've learned there. So I feel I could have skipped my master's and would have known just as much. <laughs> I imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you, you still cross paths with people on, in the master's that, that probably are still part of your network today. Yes, that is true. From a personal point of view, it was very nice. From a <laughs> university studying point of view, not at all. The curricular part, not, not so much. <laughs> yeah. That's something that interests me, which is how does uh, uh, grad school, and in this case, your master's, and, and now even your PhD, but in terms of networking, how that transfers into your professional life? And um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about these contacts that you still have, maybe even with professors uh, that, that you crossed paths with? Um, yeah, so with professors, I don't have any contact anymore. Um, I guess I could contact them for recommendation letters, but then it would be like an average recommendation letter, I guess, because they probably forgot who I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I still have a few uh, friends from university who I'm in contact with a lot. So I'm going to see them again next or this March in uh, Hamburg. So we are trying to stay in contact. Um, but more as friends, I have not had any professional advantages from this yet. It may still come eventually. Uh, have they stayed in, uh, in, in the biosciences domain? Yes, all yeah, of so them have, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the other curiosity that I had, you know, in your story is you talked about uh, a little stint in industry. This was after your master's? Yes. It was after your master's. Uh, yeah, I, I'm curious as to how did you find your way to industry? Uh, were there career fairs that you went to? Um, how did you navigate that, that, that first transition? This is actually where network comes into place because I um, got it. So the background story oops, sorry, is actually um, that I uh, went traveling first for about six months through Australia and Asia. And I have decided during traveling, I will never touch a pipette again in my life. <laughs> so uh which didn't work out very well but i'm passionate about my job right now so <laughs> i don't want to give the wrong impression and then i came back and i just needed a job to pay the rent and i um went to a party 
and there was a girl that nobody was really talking to a lot and she was doing an internship in industry and um yeah, I connected with her a little bit and then later I contacted her and asked her if she knows someone who also knows another spot for uh, an intern and she um, knew someone and uh, forwarded my application and this is how I got like my foot into the door. Excellent. And so I, I imagine, you know, your CV was put on the table, someone called you mm -hmm. and how, how did the next steps go? And uh, was it easy going, you know, going to uh, to uh, through that process? Yeah, it was super easy. I, uh, yeah, I sent my application. My uh, future boss then called me. We had five or ten minute talk where I described my master project, and then he asked, "Do you want to start here?" And I said yes, and uh, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty straightforward for sure. Yeah, That's cool, and. Uh, can you share a little bit of what, you know, what the role was it was at that stage that you got into? Um, yes, yeah, so at that stage, I got into it as an intern. And then later, my contract was uh, continued for a few more months because I um, worked on a project, which later turned into a paper. And um, I was lucky because I was so... Well, this is actually how I got excited about science again, because my supervisor back then was so inspiring and I got so much into this project that I really pushed it. And um, I ended up um, co-first author of the paper, um, actually. But this would not have happened had I not been that excited about it and had I not have had such a good supervisor. So mostly, for the most part, I was an intern. And then for a few extra months to finish the project, I was a short-term employee. Okay, excellent. So that's where you you kind of got uh, the 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 bug of science. You got you got re-inoculated with the bug of science. That's so interesting that you went all the way to industry to to kind of get that that passion for science again. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's really cool. And um, so in that case, uh, I imagine that if, you know you were an intern, you were an employee, you were you were doing experiments, you were uh, without sharing too much what type of uh, just just so people out there can imagine, okay, I, you know after my masters, I can go do this, do that, and these skills will serve me in a, in an entry level industry uh, job. Yeah, it was actually very similar to what I'm doing right now. so it it was bench work. Um, and the only difference I'd say in industry is that everything is faster because they have more money so they can provide faster equipment and more ready-made solutions and so on. Um, so this was very convenient to be able to do one Western blood in a day <laughs> rather than, yeah, or like even have it started in the morning and have it ready for my meeting with my supervisor. Uh, oh my gosh. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and with not a lot of troubleshooting i imagine because if you're buying kits uh, if you're using kits and things like that it's it's uh, not foolproof but much you know much easier yeah and the other thing i really liked about industry and it might be controversial that um people in industry are very happily killing projects rather than dragging them on because if something doesn't work and if it is not profitable they don't have an interest in continuing it because you're, you're sinking money into, into a hole, right? Yeah. And the problem or one of the problems that I have with academia is that people want publishable projects. Um, but I hear from many colleagues that what they are doing might look interesting, but it's not going to be relevant for the patient. And this is something that bothers me a little bit. Okay. 
Cool. That, that's very interesting. And it's, it's funny, I, I, one of uh, my other uh, guests said that one of the things that, that he found, and he went into uh, industry after a bunch of years of postdoc, uh, was exactly that was killing projects is part of the, of the process. You, you know, you, you try something and if it doesn't work for an X amount of time or X, X tries, it's not worth going into. And so dispassionately, you just, you, you know that it's time to cut it and to go to something else. Mm-hmm. And for sure, I find it super interesting that even at that, at that time, you felt that and you said, okay, this is, this is really a cool um, kind of mentality that, that does not exist uh, or is not fostered as much in academia. Mm-hmm. Cool. And um, now, uh, out of curiosity too, uh, as uh, you know, freshly minted uh, <laughs> masters uh, um, that was uh, first an intern and then a, an employee, were you offered, uh, were you given a training? Uh, how was kind of the onboarding process? How did they help you kind of move into the mindset of, of industry coming you know, fresh from academia? Was there something in place for you, for you to, to follow? Yes. So in theory, I had someone to supervise me. Um, practically, she had some health problems at the time. So, um, uh, yeah, but this is something, usually they have something in place. Uh, but for me, this was also the opportunity to spread my wings a little bit. Um, so actually, I enjoyed the freedom. Your independent side was happy. <laughs> yes. And again, I had a very good supervisor. So, uh, yeah, I felt I could always come to him and turn to him for questions. And apart from buying, you know, buying things that are maybe pre-made, etc., were there other differences that, that you felt that uh, some people might appreciate or some people might actually not like, but that differ a lot between the lab, the bench in academia and the bench within a company? Um, so there was one restriction about one antibody company. I'm not sure if I'm also allowed to name them because they were not treating animals very well. So we were not allowed to order antibodies from them, which I've never heard in academia. But this is something that I also really liked that, yeah, animal welfare played a role. Um, it was different in terms of um, you are not only one. Well, there are different research groups, but they are still meeting to exchange ideas. So um, even though you're working a little bit on your project, you're also collaborating a lot more and everyone is trying to push a project into a certain direction. So there's a team, there's a team aspect to the, yes. to the whole uh, uh, endeavor. Excellent. Yeah. And then the last thing that I noticed that was really strange was you get a lot of briefings about how to talk about a company and how to not to talk about it and a lot of political correctness things and so on. So every month you have to do some computer trainings about how to okay. communicate, which was strange to me. <laughs> well, yeah, I imagine that nowadays, you know, they, they need to be very careful about what comes out, not in terms of uh, intellectual property only, but of not saying the wrong, the wrong thing in the wrong way because things can spread and get viral mm-hmm. really fast. That, yeah. that's, it's interesting to see. That's one thing that I wouldn't have imagined that you'd be trained on and there, there you go. And were you other, like, communi- other aspects of the communication training that you think you still are still useful to you today? No, not really, because most of it was common sense. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Excellent. And so you you had this uh, stretch uh, at at this company, in which uh, you you learned all, all these things and uh, and you published. 
then came the time when you felt, okay, you know, I need to level up, like you were saying. And so here I go again now, and, and uh, I'm going to start, you know, trying to get a, a PhD position somewhere. First, was it easy for you to, to decide to do that? And uh, was there was some anxiety of coming back? It was, I don't know how much time in between your master's and, and going for your PhD there was, but, um, you know, was, was it an easy decision? I think it was totally, uh, in total it was one and a half years. It was, um, well, since I promised to myself before not to uh, touch a pipette again and so on, it was a bit of a struggle <laughs> like uh, to go back to academia because before I have decided otherwise. But then again, I enjoyed the work so much that I tried not to have my ego have too much say in it. Um, and then the application process was also, again, since I had a very nice supervisor in industry, he has helped me uh, a lot because... Um, yeah, there was, this is actually a funny story, um, how I ended up in my lab, because um, I was actually applying to another group, because industry was the only time where I wasn't working on cancer. And there was a group that was kind of collaborating um, with the group that I was working at in industry. Uh, so I sent my application to the grad school here, um, but directed towards this group. And the thing is that my application has never even reached the group but was forwarded to my current supervisor. And she then invited me for a uh, interview. And then I realized I really, really like this. So um, <laughs> I took this job. That's so interesting. So do you know why that, you know, why they didn't make it to the group? Yeah, that you... um, because there is this program that is called Track 2 program. So there are two ways to get into grad school here. Um, and it's different for every grad school, actually, even in Lausanne, not only in Switzerland. Um, but in my case, either you can apply directly to a group and then enter grad school kind of with the permission of the group, or you can apply to grad school, uh, to the grad school without having a group and without having formally a group and listing a few of your favorite groups. Um, and the group that uh, I had in mind first was actually um, not looking for a PhD student. And for this reason, the application was sent to some to a group that was looking for a PhD student, which ended up to be my supervisor. So there was a, some serendipity there, and and you there were, you were a good match, and here you are uh, after now uh, how many years? For three years? Four years? Uh, three and a half years, a little bit then, three, uh, less than three and a half years. Yeah, and I, and clearly uh, you're super happy with, with yeah. your with your project and and uh, and with science. It's it's great. You you reconcile with science, and here you are. <laughs> yes, yes. I think part of it why I thought I hated science was really the university and the studying and so on, which didn't go well with me. But as soon as I had some independence, uh, I really fell in love with science again. Yeah. And one thing that I that strikes me about what you've been, uh, you know, the, the, this change in mind is that clearly your supervisor in industry and now your current supervisor are, are mentors to you that really um, somehow and maybe you can develop a little bit on that brought that passion back to you and it's funny how you can think back probably anyone can think back to teachers they had in high school that really made them hate a subject uh, and then others that it's not even their favorite subject per se but oh man that that history course with professor x was so awesome because it felt like we were there so can you talk a little bit about how uh, these 
these at least these two mentors uh, kindled your your passion for science uh, back again and what inspires you in them um so with the first supervisor in industry it was really just to see his excitement about new data and i was lucky that the project was evolving fast so um, i was always presenting sig uh, significant data which was um yeah completely uh by chance in a way so it's not like my uh good quality work but just that the hypothesis has worked and so on um it was so interesting to uh, present new data to him and then to have him um, light up and to see, discuss the data with him, um, see a bit of his thought processes. So it was more like his excitement and how he um, looked at the data that has inspired me. It was just more his mindset towards science that has inspired me rather than what he said. Yeah, so you, it kind of, you kind of said, okay, science can be fun and you can get excited about science and, and that's... That's something. It's not nothing. It's uh, and and science to people that are that are outside academia or in other domains can appear boring and you know nonsensical even at times. And the the fact that you have someone in front of you who lives this uh, this uh, activity, which is which can be frustrating, uh, a very frustrating frustrating at times, uh, but lives it with excitement and uh, for sure that that must have that must have been very inspiring. Yeah, and for my current supervisor, um, I would say um, what inspires me the most about her is actually her leadership style, because she is a very, very kind person, but she is definitely not a pushover in that sense. Yeah, she's a very, very kind person. One thing that was actually my most successful tweet ever that she said to me was always show up as the best version of yourself that is available to you on each particular day. So um, she does not get upset when some things don't work as well or when sometimes I'm really, really tired uh, or stuff like that, which happens. Um, but she is really understanding. And I realized that one of the most important things in terms of um, pushing your employees, I guess, at least from my point of view, is um, loyalty. Because she is such a kind person that even if I hated my project and so on, and even if everything were, would be super difficult, I would still continue to work on it because I also, it's also her project. So I want it to be good. So, um, yeah, and I think lots of people underestimate the value of loyalty in terms of, yeah, achieving goals. Yeah, and I kind of, if all the people who believe more in the rat race type uh, reality, uh, yeah, they, they, I think they kind of, they kind of probably wouldn't uh, put loyalty in their in their equation. But I, I I agree that it's it's something very very important and enriching, and that kind of creates a bond that's stronger than than just hey you're my employer and I'm uh, your employee or something like that. But um, one of the things that that uh, this kind of brought to my mind is in Europe, in in, in Switzerland, in Germany. As a, a, a woman in science, uh, how do you feel that the status uh, of, of women, be it in, at your institute or uh, in university, how easy is it or how hard is it? How easy or how hard does your uh, supervisor have it in, in her institute? And also, the, the follow-up question is, how are girls that want to get into science, how much success are they having? in in uh, in getting into the into the domain uh, in your experience um so for my supervisor in particular i think she has it quite easy because um everyone likes her so everyone wants to collaborate with her 
Um, so um, she also just had a big um, career jump and became like also responsible for something else again. I'm not sure how much I can uh, give away about this, but I think part of it was also that she just has a lot of empathy and also has an understanding of politics like uh, institute politics and so on. So I think in that sense, it is, well, I don't know how difficult it was for her. I think there are certainly some difficulties, but I think she does it really well. So, I, I'm curious whether things are getting better and better with time. And we're, you know, we're in 2020. I, I hope they are. And, uh, and I wanted to kind of get your, your, your pul the pulse of the, of the state of things. Yeah, so recently my institute has been hiring um, there were lots of open positions um, and two out of three went to women. Um, also, I was part of the hiring process because there are different committees. So there's also a PhD student and postdoc committee, there's a PI committee, and then there's the actual committee and everyone is kind of giving their advice. So I have a, seen a bit of behind the scenes. And what I know is that when there's a tie between a man and a woman, then the woman will usually get the offer. Um, to um, support gender equality. So right now in Switzerland, I guess it is a good time to be a woman in science. Um, yes, in terms of... It is difficult for me to say because um, still like at a PhD student and postdoc level, there are a lot of women and it suddenly usually gets a lot less when it comes to professor levels. Okay, and, um, that, yeah, at that level, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm not there yet. So far, I didn't feel like held back at all. Um, I wouldn't know how it is in the future. I cannot really comment on that from personal experience. But right now, yeah, like I said, I didn't feel held back at all by being a woman. Well, just what you mentioned about uh, having, a, having a kind of a, a mechanism to tip the scales a little bit and, and bring balance is, is just a great thing. And if it's done by the institution, it's, it's a good thing. Now, you just said something that piqued my interest and we're almost getting to the half point of the interview but which was your your part in a committee that that um, has something that has some say in the hiring process in your institute uh, is that something that all this, the PhD students do or something that you yourself uh, got into somehow in theory everyone can do it but in practice, most people think they don't really have more, much um, say. And it is true, we don't have much say because in the end, in the hiring process, there are so many, fact, uh, so many different factors that not even the committee has as much say as we uh, think. It is really complicated. Um, so because um, usually the committee then gives their favorite candidates to the university and then the university says, well, no, but for X, Y, Z reasons, this is not a good match. So... Um, I joined it more for the experience um, to read some CVs of um, some applicants and um, see how people, well, also to experience a bit like the um, standpoint of someone who is interviewing because um, so far I've only been interviewed and I realized there are some people who give horrible answers. So now I <laughs> am prepared to not do that. Like um, one person, for instance, said, um, well, she was a postdoc and she was applying for a position um, as a tenure track professor or something like that. And when we asked her what is her weakness or what she doesn't like, her response was, I don't like it when people are better than me. And um, <laughs> I feel this is like the worst thing if you want to work in an environment with very uh, ambitious people. So this was something for me 
to, well, I wouldn't say this, but yeah, uh, I wouldn't say this anyway, but yeah, it was interesting to see the hiring process from the other perspective. Very cool. And, and I think it's very, very, a very good initiative because you're going to, you're going to learn a lot and you probably already are like you're, like you're mentioning. And uh, for sure now, whenever, whenever we'll have to interview, be it for academia or outside of academia, you'll have this, uh, you'll have all this baggage and, and uh, all, all this learning. This is, this is a very good, uh, the, a very good takeaway from this for the, the listeners out there is if you can take part in, uh, in um, the different institutional mechanisms of, of where, wherever you're, you're studying, where, where students are supposed to take part in, do, because you'll meet people, there's, there's, a network, there's a networking aspect, but also, you know, you learn the ropes of something that's a little bit outside of what you do on the bench every day, so... Mm-hmm. I, really, kudos for you to to you know to do this apart from all all the things that you do already. I think I think it's a, an example people should follow definitely. The other thing that I wanted to ask you is: throughout this time, have you had training on interviewing and on tailoring your CV and things like that, or is it something that you've you've had to kind of learn on your own? Uh, no, I don't think I've ever had training. I'm lucky that my father is hiring a lot here, so. Um... I learned from him. Yeah, that's training. <laughs> that counts. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have official training though. But uh, I imagine that that whatever uh, advice your dad gave you has been useful, and that that you've probably taken it, taken it, uh, and and used it. Um, okay, Stephanie, uh, this has been super interesting, and I, we found some themes here that that were unexpected, but uh, that that are very very interesting to me, and and I hope to the uh, to the audience too. So we're going to take our little break and, uh, and then we're going to resume and hear about your, your other current activities. I'd really love you, the audience, to play an active role in the show. So if there's a theme you'd like to see covered on the show, or if there's a guest you'd like me to interview, head over to anchor.fm forward slash PhD and drop us a voice message to be featured on a future episode. On the Papa PhD website, you can also subscribe to our newsletter and get our resource sheet at the bottom of every page. And you can also leave us a written message in our contacts page. So here we are, part two of my interview with Stephanie from Career Conversations. And uh, well, Career Conversations, uh, tell us a little bit more about what that's all about. Uh, it's history because it's, uh, it's changed uh, in time. And, uh, and the motivation that brought you to creating this, this uh, platform where you communicate with PhD students uh, throughout the world. Yes, so Career Conversations is a project that I started because there are lots of PhD students. I observe a lot that there is um, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and PhD students usually feel like kind of the victim of the system and don't really feel that they are in control of their future. Because in the end, um, we feel that our career relies on um, how well we publish. And how well we publish relies on both whether journals like our research and also very often still whether we have significant and novel data. And those two things we are not in control of. So I see where the anxiety comes from. And my idea was more to show PhD students what aspects of their career they are in control of and to tweak those things. So lately, um, I'm getting a lot into Twitter and how to... um, promote your research online because it has been shown that there's a direct correlation between the amount of citations that we get and the amount of tweets that we 
have or retweets that our publications have. And this is, for instance, one of the ways that I show people how to retake control of their careers. But this is the whole mindset of career conversations. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now you're, you're mainly uh, producing and hosting uh, on YouTube, mm -hmm. right? But in the past, you've done uh, some, uh, some episodes uh, in podcast form. So can you tell us a little bit of, about the, the, the history, let's say, of Career Conversations, when it started, you know, uh, what was the, the, the click moment when you said, you know what, I'm going to start this, and, uh, and how then you went on to, to make it to what it is today? It actually started even earlier than the podcast. It was, again, one of those opportunities where I did something outside of my PhD still for the Institute. So I organized a career seminar for our Institute. And I realized that I had so much fun with it. And I planned it so fast that I was disappointed that the planning was over. Um, <laughs> so I um, pitched my idea to um, something that's called the Graduate Campus. It is like a career platform for PhD students at our university and said that I would like to continue organizing seminars. And um, since I'm very picky of who I invite, I thought, okay, let's do a podcast where I kind of check whether our um, uh, guests have something eloquent to say. <laughs> so um, the podcast was in the end only a disguise to not be the PhD student who says, by the way, before I invite you, could you please tell me uh, if you're good? So it was kind of like testing the seminar guests. Um, and then I also enjoyed this. Well, by the way, the career conversation seminars at our university are still ongoing. <laughs> so I still organize them also in parallel, but this is only a Lausanne thing, unfortunately. Um, and uh, then I realized I had so much fun with it that I wanted, to, wanted people to see it or to listen to it. Um, so I had to get better at algorithm things because I did the podcast very unsuccessfully, to be honest. Um, I feel it was only my father and maybe my mother and the head of the graduate campus who was listening and maybe two or three more people. Um, yeah, and I feel this is such a pity if you're doing something only like halfway. So um, then I did a course on how to do proper YouTube videos because I realized the one problem with podcasts is um, everyone is using a different podcast app. So you cannot really put out one link and then all of your audiences on Twitter will click on this link and they will all use the same app. So um, this was also one of the big reasons why I moved to YouTube because there, there is only one link that everyone can access. Um, yes, and this is how I started to do YouTube. I also started to get an editor because I, um, I still have a PhD, so I cannot do um, everything. And luckily, the graduate campus was willing to pay for my editor. Um, and the funny thing is in the ad, I was writing um, in this team, we don't have any knowledge about social media. So please bring social media knowledge um, with you. Um, but in the end, it didn't. Well, my editor is awesome at video editing but it would have been too much to also give her the social media part. So I had to get into it and learn it. And I think there's some value when some people are super intuitive about social media and um, are good from beginning on, but actually I struggled with 69 Twitter followers for three or four months and it never really increased. And 
there's some value in learning something consciously. So I'm not an intuitive social media user. Um, and I didn't really enjoy social media. I didn't even see the value of Twitter. And when I started to get into it and understand the strategy, I realized how much value it can have for fellow PhD students and postdocs. I think I would have never noticed the, this if I had just been a Twitter user just for fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, this uh, comes to what you mentioned to me before, uh, before uh, we started chatting, which, which is that uh, you are planning and you're preparing an online course on how uh, you know, PhD students can promote their research online or researchers uh, at large can promote their research online to, to kind of disseminate your research uh, as to as many people as possible. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Is it? Yes. So the overall idea is um, as researchers, we are very often measured in citations. This is not a good way to be measured. I don't think it says anything about the quality of a researcher, but this is still the reality of how research are, researchers are hired um, very often. This is also not the only factor, but it is a huge factor. Um, and we are not in control of whether people like our paper, but we are in control of how many people see our paper. Um, and since I realized um, that we can tweak the algorithm, especially of Twitter very much, and that there are lots of scientists on Twitter, I thought, why not show people how to do this? Um, so this is going to be one idea of my course. And the other idea is actually going to be um, doing a video abstract. Um, and I think the value of a video abstract that you put on YouTube um, is that YouTube, I mentioned this in another video, is a search engine. So if you are able to tweak your title um, in a way that people will actually find you, then it is like an evergreen sales machine in a way to your uh, publication. Because um, the only issue of Twitter is that you do a tweet and people will maybe see it for three days and then it is lost basically. So you have to tweet about it all the time. So I think having those two things together is going to really get you an advantage in terms of yeah being found and also people just generally being interested in your work yeah it's super interesting because uh, not long ago i was at a meeting in portugal actually and uh, one of the things that came out uh, and and to, for me was the importance of uh, even for students of being good at communicating science. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, definitely, if you cross that with using techno the, the technologies that are, uh, that are at your disposal, using uh, social media and platforms like YouTube uh, can even propel that to an even you know, higher, uh, higher level. That, that's that's really really interesting, and I'm I'm curious to see what's. I know you're working on it. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'll be watching out for for whatever whatever comes out. Um, now, uh, you you've mentioned that career conversation are is also a series of seminars uh, at the the career uh, let's say the career center uh, at at Lausanne uh, at your university. Uh, I think it's it's very cool. You so you're still part of organizing that. Yes, I'm still part of organizing this. So uh, we already have a few plans about 2020. So far, it was really very very career focused the seminars. But now, um, hopefully, um, the first seminar is going to be about um, mental health, imposter syndrome, those kinds of things, because um, people are starting to realize that the way that you're performing during your PhD is going to affect very much your career future. So it is not only the application process in itself, but also everything that comes before. 
Mm-hmm. Super interesting, super important, and I can't I can't uh, uh, stress it more. And and I try to to touch upon that uh, in every episode that I can, and that it that it arises and that it's possible. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's really a great idea. Now, uh, my question: Are they in English? Are they in in German? Uh, they are in English. My follow up question was: Are you going to film them and and post them on YouTube? No, I wish I could. It depends. Um, for the last seminar I asked and the speaker said um, they wouldn't talk as freely. Um, so I will ask again for the next seminar. But I think given that it is a very personal subject, I don't think that people will be comfortable with it. I would watch those videos for sure uh, because it's, it's something that I really, really, I'm really interested in and I think is very, very important. Uh, but now where actually I was getting was Organizing the, these seminars and, and collaborating in, in the organization of the seminars and, uh, uh, you know, uh, talking with these different speakers, you must have uh, learned a lot and uh, you, you must, uh, you know, there must be um, some take-home messages that you, that you have uh, in, internalized for yourself. Um, in, during the break, you were talking to me about the importance for PhD students of setting standards for themselves professionally. Uh, even uh, when looking for PhDs or when looking for a postdoc position. I'm going to let you talk about it because I think you have a very interesting point and, and uh, I'd love the, 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 the audience to, to hear what you have to say about that because I think it's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, so I think it even relates a little bit to doing those um, seminars because the one thing that I learned from those seminars is to just ask um, for whatever you want, and you will be surprised by um, how willing people are to help you. So in that sense, um, I think people don't really have enough standards because I think they cannot really achieve it. For instance, I feel PhD students and postdocs don't really feel they can make a proper living and have a proper salary and still do a PhD, which is really not the case. Um, in Switzerland, for instance, we earn really a proper amount of money and we live like a normal adult would be living. Um, but I think uh, you will not really achieve that unless you say, I won't settle for anything less than X amount of money with which I will be able to afford a proper flat and so on. Um, and I think there's also an important point to be made to actually um, support those employers and those universities that um, are going to value you because most people don't really realize how valuable their talent really is and I hope there's going to come a day where universities are really competing for talent um, by offering proper work conditions um, so this is where I'm advertising Switzerland very much everyone should come to Switzerland here you get very nice uh, <laughs> a very nice salary and also we have very good papers that we are putting out actually so we can compete with top universities of the world <laughs> yeah because one of the things that, that I felt when we were chatting uh, was sometimes when you're a PhD student and uh, depending on where which country you come from and where you're doing your PhD you might go into the experience hoping they, they're going to do the favor of letting me into the program mm-hmm. and uh, am I hearing right so I think this is a mindset that's not helpful right no I don't think it is uh, helpful at all I think everyone has something to bring to the table Um, And we just have to know where our talents lie and kind of play to those strengths instead of trying to, um, instead of, 
having the feeling I have to take everything that is being offered to me and I don't really have a choice. Um, so um, actually the one career counselor that I've interviewed said that everyone is in the top 10% in some skill. Uh, so I feel, um, yeah, as soon as we realize what our skills are and what we have to bring to the table, yeah, we can negotiate a lot more and we can be um, a lot more picky about what we are choosing in the end. This makes me think of a lot of things, but imagine, you know, students out there who don't have any example in their family of someone who has done a PhD, who has looked for a university and who may ha be in this mindset of, oh, well, let's hope they accept me. Do you have some advice for them as to, to how to kind of empower themselves and to say, no, I am the talent and I'm going to get a PhD that's, you know, that reaches my standards. Is there a couple of pieces of advice for students who are kind of in this situation of maybe, maybe doubting their value and not valuing themselves enough in the, in the scope of looking for, for a PhD position and looking for a good university or, or a good institute. Um, yes. Uh, so my first advice is something that my father always told me is in every sort of negotiation. And in the end, everything is a negotiation in a way you have to be willing to leave the table. Um, so um, I think it is helpful to have a plan B and to um, not feel that the one position that, is, that you're negotiating right now is the only position that is ever going to be offered to you in your life. Um, and it takes a certain amount of bravery for which I don't really have much um, advice, unfortunately. It is just, um, yeah, be willing to leave the table, but I'm not sure how to reach this willingness. It is something that I guess I had inside of me, but I don't know how. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> eventually the situation will arise when, when you'll say, okay, this is the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's really, really good. It's, it's, a ver it's very condensed and short, but it's very, very good advice. Uh, um, because if you, yeah, if you go into something uh, with this mindset, You won't be disappointed because the negotiation failed because you said, well, if this, it, it simply didn't reach my, my standards. It didn't, they didn't uh, meet my conditions. So I'm going to look for, for the next, the next uh, interview and the next thing. That's yes. And also to add to this, maybe. Um, so I always drew, uh, I don't really draw a lot of self-value from um, any successes, but I draw a lot of self-value from being a trier. So um, for me, this is something that is very important that I value the process of getting, going to the interview and trying more than I would beat myself up for not getting it. That's a great way to go through life because just by design, life is, is made of, you know, bumping your head and then learning something and then not bumping your head the second time. So if you try things, you're growing, you're learning, and, and that information, that uh, experience will feed into whatever you do next. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in your club, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. This is, this is uh, it's very cool. Um, and, uh, and I think it's really, really good advice. Uh, and um, the next thing that I, that I wanted to uh, ask you uh, was, not everyone will have uh, a PI or a supervisor or an institute where 
they'll be able to easily take time off to develop projects such as career conversations. You, you, I think you really, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the, the university where you are, the group where you are, they have a good culture, a good, a good environment that, mm-hmm. that clearly it feels to me, I think I have fun doing a PhD there because there's a good vibe that you're transmitting there. But it's not like that everywhere. Um, based probably on, on uh, things that, that, you may have, that may have been covered in your seminars, how, can, how could people still be able to develop other aspects of their life, of their personality, of their creativity while doing their PhD uh, and successfully? Um, so first, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to give advice on this because I've never been in the situation. But what I could imagine uh, helps is to acknowledge that... Um, you have to come first yourself. So I think lots of employers are going to guilt you into working more. And nobody, um, if you're not in a work environment where people are looking after you, by definition, you're the only person who can look after yourself. Um, So I think this is an important mindset to have that, for instance, if you, I have an 85% contract. So um, I, if I were in an environment that is less supportive and I'm, if I knew where I would want to go, then I would be sure to not work more than 85% of the time and to invest the rest of the time into developing other um, skills, let's say. So I think, yeah, if it is not a supportive work environment, then be sure to be supportive of yourself and take the rules very, very literal in terms of, yeah, if they're only paying you 85%, then only work for 85%. Unless you want to stay in academia, this is another thing about publications and so on. Okay, so this 85% contract, I have not ever heard about, uh, about anything like that. Can you describe a little bit how, how that is actually, how a contract works for you at your university, what they expect from you and, and how that's all contractualized? Yes, so I... Uh... I think a 100% contract would be working 42 hours per week, um, which is, I think, what postdocs make, or like a postdoc uh, thing, but I'm not sure. Don't put me down on postdoc salaries because I'm not a postdoc. <laughs> um, yeah, but since I have an 85% contract, I am paid for 85% of 42 hours, whatever much this is. <laughs> um, and then I also do teaching. So in theory, 10% of our time is supposed to be spent teaching, um, which is why also um, teaching comes on top of the 85%. Um, Yes, so this is how it works. Um, I'm not sure how it is. It is like a normal um, contract that you would have with companies. The only thing is that we don't really clock in and out. It's just something that they trust us with. And usually PhD students work more than 85%. Um, so do all PhD students teach? Um, yes, at least in my institute and also in some other institutes that I know. I don't know anyone who doesn't teach, but um, I'm not sure. Okay, so well, listeners out there, if uh, you're not attached to where you live, go, uh, go study in Switzerland. It's, it seems to be a very uh, nurturing uh, environment for, for students, for PhD students, because uh, you know, apart from everything else, you come out of it with some teaching experience too. So, ah, so this is not common. I didn't know that. 
Well, f- not not everywhere for sure because um, people, uh, the people I've crossed and the places I've been, people have their stipends that they that they uh, that they apply for, and then uh, they work full time on the on their project, and and um, it's really really interesting. Now I'm curious. I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe uh, or ch- either chat with you or read about how the system works in Switzerland because. Clearly, it's different, and and I think it's well it's well designed. Yeah, I can add to this. You can even teach in English because here in Lausanne, people speak French, and I don't speak French, and still I can uh, teach. So excellent! And you teach lab classes, or yes, I teach first year bachelor students. Um, this is um, a lot of fun, but sometimes also, um, yeah, you make sure that they don't kill themselves or hurt themselves <laughs> in the <laughs> yeah. beginning. But yeah, usually they're very nice students and um, yeah, I really enjoy that. That's super, super interesting. Uh, and well, I, I'm, I'm glad I, I, you know, I'm glad first that the story brought us there and then, then I asked the question because uh, it makes me think how many different, you know, PhD structures exist around the world and uh, how, how different things may be between the continents and between countries. It's a, uh, it's interesting, very interesting. The the fact that it's part of the contract and that you have a contract that allows you, you know, a fifteen percent of time on your activities. I guess that's that's what it means, right? Yeah. Uh, during the work hours, it's very very different from what what happens here in in North America. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you still have to compete internationally in terms of the amount of experiments that you do and so on. So most people still spend 100% of their time uh, doing research. But this is not a Swiss thing. It is, like I said, we are competing with everyone in the world still for good publications. So. And we are in the domain, in the life sciences. It's very time-consuming, the research. Uh, and I don't know if you have uh, what type of models and things you work on, but it can, it, can be, it can really take a lot of your time. But still, the fact that, that you have this contract that's signed, that has this percentage, I imagine... If you don't spend this hundred percent of the time, it's more conducive to not feeling guilty of you know taking a part of your time to I don't know do yoga or you, you know I think there's there's something smart there in terms of of uh, even the, your mindset towards that contract and towards uh, your work. Yes, that is true. I guess it also depends on the PI, but then again, I have a very supportive PI. I know lots of other people that uh, don't feel the same. So, um, well, it's a, it's a case by case, I guess. Anyway, uh, to me, it's, it's very, uh, foreign. I, I, it's the first time I, I hear about this. So I, I guess I'll need to get instructed a little bit more. Stephanie, uh, we're almost at the end of the interview. This has been really great so far. I'm, I'm super happy that, uh, that I, uh, I invited you and, and, and thankful that you accepted and we're getting to that part now where, uh, and I know we kind of already talked about uh, some advice for, for the listeners out there, but, um, you know, now thinking of not of students that are going into their PhD, but that are like you in their last months or the last two years of their PhD, uh, one of the things that's, that's important is keeping focus and, and uh, they may have, you know, hit some roadblocks uh, recently, or are dealing with. Okay, now I have to write. Oh my God, what, what you know? What's that all about? How am I going, how am I going to do that? And uh, what I'd like uh, from you uh, is that you share any advice on how you're dealing with this 
kind of last year or last two years mindset, how they can also uh, adopt uh, uh, a kind of outlook on what's coming up to make it the smoothest possible and to, you know, to, to um, take on this part of the, the, the PhD lifetime that, uh, that has different challenges and that takes a different type of focus. Yes. So um, there are several things that come to mind. The first thing is um, it depends whether you want to stay in academia or not. Um, because I think when you stay, want to stay in academia, then you should stay in your PhD for as long as possible. Um, but I am quite confident that I don't want to stay in academia. So my mindset is that I want to be done as fast as possible. And then maybe I might do a postdoc to finish my uh, papers and so on. Or most likely I will, but I want to get this PhD over with. So this is um, how everything is inspired that I'm doing. Um, and one of my mindsets is that I don't really debate with myself whether I have motivation to do something because I just want to be um, getting this title. And I kind of believe in Parkinson's law that is um, a task is always going to take as long as you give it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is mostly my mindset. And I still have um, the possibility to extend my PhD. So I want, right now I want to be done in September. Um, in one and a half month, we will know whether some experiments need more time and I will have to ask for an extension or not. Um, but I'm trying to be as unemotional as, yeah, as unemotional as possible and to think if I want to finish it in this time, then um, most likely I will manage to if I put my mind to it. Excellent. I, I think the emotional part that you just mentioned is very important is if you're too attached to your results and, and if you're too identified with, with your PhD and if, it, if you put too much importance uh, in it, in, in weighing how good your life is going, you are almost certainly uh, going to, to have some disappointment, some suffering that comes from that because the PhD is, is looking into the unknown and finding a, you know, a nugget of gold in there that no one has seen before. And it's, it's hard. And uh, I, I think uh, from what you said, just that, that word, be unemotional about it, uh, I think it's uh, it could be our take-home message for uh, for uh, <laughs> for the question that I that I asked you, uh, which is focus. Don't get anxious or angry or stressed. Just keep an eye on the prize and uh, and put as much energy into it as it takes, and and not mm -hmm. not announce more. It, it kind of uh, loops back to what you talked about in industry, which is be be ready to close a chapter when it's time to close the chapter and, and go to the next one, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Stephanie, you are online in different platforms. How can people reach you? How can people follow you, follow what you do, follow the things you have to say? Um, so I tweet every day. Um, my Twitter name is very bad. It's careerconversar1. And this was... Uh, done when I still had no idea about Twitter. So it is bad, but maybe it is memorable because it is so bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, and overall, my name is Career Conversations. Um, you can find me easier on YouTube under Career Conversations. There, my channel pops up um, immediately. 
And yeah, those are the two main aspects. I will be, yeah, right now my website is under construction. So let us not talk about that. Yeah, so the main two things are YouTube and Twitter. Career Conversations or Career Conversar 1. Perfect. So I'll put those in the show notes for your episode. And eventually when your new refreshed website is up, I'll put it there too. And, and uh, people will, able to, will be able to, uh, to see what you're up to. Again, Stephanie, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. I think uh, touched upon a lot of things that I that I uh, didn't expect, and that uh, that I think uh, our our listeners will appreciate a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Definitely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.